today we have the pleasure of starting a brand new sermon series uh, called Unbelief. Unbelief is something we've been thinking about doing for a while now, and it's kind of a complicated thing to get into because there's this danger that if we admit there's things we don't entirely know, and if we admit that there's things that are controversial, then we actually have to talk about them. And if we talk about them, then maybe we'll decide that I didn't know that I didn't know that. And so it's this kind of dicey thing. And so over the next seven weeks, what we're going to do is go through some of those things that whether we admit it or not, um, and definitely whether our neighbors, our friends, uh, those that are on the outside that would say they're not ready for faith yet, whether they would admit it or not, we're going to touch on those things and try to think of and talk about a better way for us to think about them. And hopefully in doing so, we will have a deeper faith and a better, a greater confidence when we talk to others about our faith. And so what that looks like uh, for the next seven weeks, we'll be talking about the exclusivity of God. Is, is there only one way of God's very existence? How can I be sure that that's even a real thing? Uh, science versus faith is a very popular thing, and we're going to talk about whether or not they need to be versus each other. Uh, we'll talk about really practical daily things that you deal with. Um, hypocrisy. The number three reason that uh, people would say they refuse to join up with Christianity, that they don't follow Christ. The top three have nothing to do with theology. They all have to do with people's behaviors. And the third one, 87% of people who don't choose Christianity say they don't choose it because Christians are hypocrites. So we'll talk about hypocrisy. We'll talk about the confusing world of uh, sex, sexuality, gender issues. And then we'll also talk about what do we do with, with suffering, with evil? Um, how do we reconcile that with this faith that we claim? So it's going to be a uh, hair-raising seven weeks. I hope you are buckled in. Um, we are excited to start this week with uh, kind of a foundational week. And what we want to do is learn what does it mean to approach our faith with humility? What does it mean to, to be a follower of Christ who's willing to say, I don't know? And to say it without feeling bad about it, to say it without thinking that it's going to open up some great hole in the universe and we're all going to tumble through it. What is it, someone asks us a hard question, is it okay to say, you know what, I, I don't know about that? What we know to be true is that the brightest theological minds to ever exist disagree on some really important stuff disagree on fundamental issues of faith, disagree on how we're to apply it or how we to live it out. We have believers all over the world that have different practices, that take communion different or that, that treat Sunday different. Some don't even go to church on Sunday. They go to church on Saturday because they read it this way and reread it that way, and that's okay. Some seek uh, their hope and answers in one part of the scripture and others seek it in another. What we want to do is, is zero in on the essentials, and then we want to seek our hope and our answers where we can, and then learn, maybe through this seven weeks, to embrace the mystery of faith where we find it. So we have a lot to get through, so let me just start. Uh, we're going to be in Mark uh, chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. And I wanted to make a mention, we have these out in the foyer now. If, if you need a Bible, if you're ever here and you go, I don't have a Bible, or I have a friend and I've been talking to them and they don't have a Bible, we have a big whole box of these, and they're on the bookshelf. And so if you're ever here on a Sunday morning and you see someone who needs a Bible, you grab one of these or ten of these, and we'll just fill it right back in. So I just wanted to mention that. Okay, Mark 9. Up on the screen, you can read it with me. It says, And when they, uh, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. And the scribes, like the teachers of the law, were arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he, and he fell on the ground, and he rolled about, foaming at the mouth. 
And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And has often cast him into the fire, into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Verse 23, Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. What you need to know context-wise uh, context here is Jesus has just come away from uh, feeding thousands. He's done one of these miracles where he takes a couple fish and a couple loaves of bread and he feeds thousands of people from it. He then heals a blind man. He foretells his death and resurrection. And then, and then they go to what's called the transfiguration. We're up on the mountaintop. Jesus is shown in all of his glory. And Moses shows up and Elijah shows up and the voice of God is there. And with him are, uh, are Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John are with Jesus in this moment where they kind of see him in the fullness of glory. And it's that, it's exactly what you would expect if you saw God, which is like the bright light and the, you know, ah, that whole thing. And they kind of had that moment with, with Jesus. So, so leaving that moment, coming here, they were looking at Jesus all of a sudden like, you know what, this isn't just any ordinary rabbi. This is not just a good teacher. There's, there's something like materially different about this. And so you have to imagine Peter, James, and John show up and their eyes are like saucers as they come away from that experience and they walk into this experience. And so when we start, it says, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd. This is Jesus, Peter, James, and John walking into this sort of debate that's already happening. Jesus looks at the folks as they gather and they can't cast out this demon and they don't know what to do. And Jesus looks at them and calls them a faithless generation, which we often paint Jesus as the, the sweet, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, holding the lamb and, and, you know, stroking. The, and that's the Jesus we like to see because he's real sweet and nice. And he's also the Jesus who looks at his followers and goes, you faithless generation. What are you doing? He has really the exasperation of a parent. We've, uh, we've taken to fishing since we moved to Ohio. This is the thing that we do because it's not 112 degrees outside. And so we go fishing and, and any parent... Mom or dad knows when you take your children fishing, or in my case, when you take your children and your wife fishing, um, the dad or, or parent in charge, mom can do this, grandma does this, as you sit and as you, you sit down and you put your camping chairs and you open the tackle box, and, and what do you do? You begin to like get the first pole ready and you get the, the line just right and you attach the tackle and then you, you make sure the hook is tight and you start to bait the hook and, and then you give it to uh, the person who's supposed to do the fishing. You know, you give it to a child, you throw it out and you go, okay, now you take it from here. For my wife and I, my kids are in school on Friday, and I take Fridays off, and so we've been taking Fridays. Uh, last fall, we went fishing almost every Friday. We had a lot of fun. We didn't catch any fish, but we had a lot of fun. And one of the reasons we didn't catch any fish is I would get the first hook done, and I'd hand it to my wife, and I'd go, okay, you do your thing, and I'm going to get the second pole ready. And before I'd gotten the second pole ready, the, you know, the bobber on or the, the bait on, I'd kind of get a tap on the shoulder and a sheepish look, and she'd go, it's, it's in the tree again. I look up, and sure enough, the, you know, the line is like taut into the, it's like, how do you get it into the trees? And she's like, well, I just thought that looked like the best spot, so I wanted to get close, and I overshot it a bit. And so, bring it to me. I take that pole down. I have the other one just ready in time, so I hand her that pole. You go off with this one. And so then I'm yanking the thing out of the tree, and it snaps, and so I'm rebaiting the hook, and I do it all over again. And then about when that one's done, I get the tap on the shoulder, and she goes, oh, I think I have a snag. And she's pulling at it real hard, and there's like a log on the bottom that she's hooked somehow. And so we sprayed out again, and we went through a box of hooks, and, you know, we kept the, the bait shop in, in business, and we caught nothing, and yet we had some fun. But this is that moment. Everybody's experienced. I've never been exasperated with you students. I've, everybody's experienced the exasperation of 
Jesus here. Jesus basically says, just, just bring me the poles, guys. Really? What? Another snag? Just bring him to me. And so Jesus calls them over, and then we get this impre- incredible picture. As the boy is brought to Jesus, this incredible picture of what happens when evil is in the presence of God. We always say everyone in here is in a battle. Everyone's fighting a battle of some sort, whether big or small, you are fighting a battle. When evil is in the presence of God, look what evil does. It writhes, it convulses. Evil and God don't exist in the same space. So whatever battle you're in, maybe what you take from this, just a little side note, man, take that battle before God. Bring God into the battle and see what happens. Evil in the presence of God writhes. And and what's interesting is Jesus just keeps like chatting with the dad. The scripture says he's rolling on the floor, foaming at the mouth. You can see him in that, that kind of desert setting on those, those reddish brown rocks that you get that Middle Eastern setting and there's this boy foaming at the mouth, rolling in front of Jesus and he looks at the dad and he goes, so how long has this been happening? It's like this ER moment where you feel like you're dying and the ER doctor just keeps on going with their casual stuff. The dad tells him. The spirit's been driving him into the fire. The spirit's trying to drown him. And what he says is have compassion on me. And we've, we've learned over the last couple of years, compassion is, is the same word for pity in scripture. Have pity. Like, look at us and feel, feel sorry for us if you need to, but can you help? Can you help? He says, have compassion if you can. Save us if you can. To which Jesus replied, if I can. It reminds me of that, the gift that's online of the blinking. The, you know, you'll send somebody a text and they don't believe the news and they just send you the guy who's blinking back like, are, are you sure? It's that sort of child, please answer. Child, please, come on. Jesus looks at him like, if I can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And so the man's response is what? I believe. Help my unbelief. If you're, if you're a black and white thinker, if you're the right or wrong, black or white, firstborn, let me apologize here. This is the time for you to take a deep breath. We're going to wander into the gray of life a little bit. That if faith to you is a light switch and it's either on or it's off and it's either right or it's wrong, buckle up, Okay. Because he says, I believe, help my unbelief. What we find here in scripture is not an either-or proposition, it's a both-and kind of thing. In English, it's actually helpful when we get the translation in English because there's a semicolon. And it marries two independent clauses, right? So you have two closely related independent clauses. I believe, one, help my unbelief, two. And what that, what that little piece of punctuation does is it brings them together and it says these are two independent clauses that we're going to draw into one larger idea. Two distinct things have been joined into one thing. And so what he's saying is I believe and yet I'm riddled with doubt still. I believe and have unbelief at the very same time. When I was in high school, I don't remember what year, I may have put this out of my mind for obvious reasons in a moment, but I was... Uh, my first car was not a very nice car. Uh, it had a sagging headliner in the car, and you couldn't get in the driver's side door, so you had to pretend to drop your keys and crawl in the passenger side so the girls wouldn't see you. And it was a whole, it was a whole thing. It also didn't have anti-lock brakes, which was uh, now apparently standard on cars, but who knew? And uh, one day, I'm driving down uh, the freeway in San Antonio. So like a, a eight lanes across between the two sides and people going 65, 70, and, and it's slick outside. It's a little like this. And, and I realize, I recognize the cars in front of me are starting to really slow down fast. 
And so I go to my break, and I get that, uh, that unsettling feeling. If you remember anti-lock breaks, if you're old enough to know this, there's this feeling where nothing happens. And then you, what do you do when your anti-lock, when, you're, when your non-anti-lock breaks don't work? The instructions where you have to, you have to start pumping them, which is a really terrible feeling because the cars are getting closer because they're stopped now, and I'm still barreling at 65, and I'm pumping the brakes, and nothing's happening. And then they finally catch, but in order to catch, they then just, like, lock because they're not anti-lock brakes. And so now I'm skidding at 60 miles an hour. And it's like me to the back wall in these cars, and I know I have a decision to make. And I look up, and I just go, well, I'm not going to kill those people, so let's just see what happens. And so I, I just, I swerve. And I go off, I'm on the right, far right lane, I go off the side of uh, the main lanes onto the shoulder, and then there's a 45-degree embankment that leads from the highway and the shoulder. There's an embankment, and then there's like a frontage road in all the development. And so my front tire, I have no idea how this happened. My front tire hits the embankment at some strange angle, and my car comes back up around with my trunk behind me. So this is, well, I'll just do it this way. So I'm driving, and I hit the embankment, and then I do this, and I land like that. I land backwards, uh, facing oncoming traffic on the shoulder, and I kind of look around and take this deep breath, and like, nothing's broken. Everything's okay. I didn't hit them. I missed that light pole by 18 inches, the cop later tells me. Everything worked out. All right. I open the, well, not my door, but the other door, because I can't get out mine. I make my way. I kind of crawl up the embankment, walk across the frontage road, and I just happen to be by a major shopping mall. So being before the age of cell phones, I just kind of take a stroll through the mall for a while. Look around. I end up in a department store. I say, hey, can I borrow your phone? No big deal. They let me borrow their phone. I pick up the phone. I said, hey, hey, mom. Um, no big deal. Everything's fine. I'm at the mall. Yeah. Yeah, no, just, just browsing, browsing, not really here for anything. Anyway, my car is kind of, I pulled over on the shoulder. My car is really not working right now. So everything is fine. Can you, can you just come and pick me up and we'll figure, I'll forget it totally. We'll figure it out. Oh, sure. Okay. Well, where are you? I tell her right where I'm. Yeah, I know right where that is. She comes. By the time I get back out to the car and she's pulling up, uh, there's a, police officer there who's like measuring things and looking at me a little strange and, and what was funny is when I said mom everything is fine I'm pulled over I, the car's safely on the shoulder nothing to worry about all of that was true right safely on the shoulder I pulled over everything's fine it's also entirely a lie at the same time nothing is okay the car like fell apart it's like the scene in the blues brothers where the bumper just falls off and everything's over it was both, everything was both fine and not at all fine. So I, I basically had a statement that was simultaneously true and untrue. It was simultaneously, I believe and help me with my unbelief. It was that whole thing where you go, how can those things be true at the same time? They just were. So how do we work through our unbelief? How do we work through everything is fine and yet there's parts of me where everything is not, not fine? I'm really confident in my beliefs. I'm confident in, in what I think and what I feel and, and how this all works. And I'm confident that the scripture is true. And yet, I got this list of things that if you really press me on it, I don't know. That's what this whole series is about. That it's okay to believe and still struggle with unbelief. That you're allowed to have moments of weird doubt or soul-level crisis. You're allowed to, to sit up in the middle of the night and have that feeling of, oh, I, I just, I actually don't know. You're allowed to believe and still spend your life working through these pockets of unbelief that exist in our world. 
It was not something I was ever taught. It was, it was either black or white. If you don't believe all these things, then you just obviously don't believe. If you doubt at all, if there's 1% doubt, I'm not sure if you really believe. And so we went through years of people trying to resave everyone else. Are you sure? But when we suffer, when we encounter evil or loss, when we cry out and hear nothing back, when we feel alone with the weight of the universe, those are moments where it's okay to say, Father, I believe. Help my unbelief. What we are so often taught is that holy people don't doubt. It's just not true. But holy people that have been set apart, people that God has called his children, still have moments of crisis, still have moments of doubt, still have moments of darkness. That in the throes of grief or in the throes of pain, and we can still ask why. It's okay to say, help me in my unbelief. I would actually suggest that acknowledging our unbelief is the first step on the path to authentic intimacy with God. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, helplessness, not holiness, is the first step to accessing the presence of God. Helplessness, not holiness, is the first step to accessing the the presence of God. Which is to say this. People who think they have it together don't run to Jesus. People who think they have it all together and they got it all figured out, they don't run to Jesus because what do we need Jesus for if I got it all figured out? What Tim Keller is saying is that it's helplessness that drives us to God. It's helplessness, our our awareness that we don't have it all together, that we haven't figured it out, that we don't know where this is all going, is what takes us back to God, which takes us back to truth, which takes us back to hope. Let's keep reading our story. In verse 25, we pick it up, and it says, When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. Helplessness, not holiness. If you approach God with holiness, you walk up and say, I'm faithful, now bless me. What that is, is faith in self, not faith in God. Jesus' response is not, to the, to the man who's asking, can you please save my son? Can you please intervene? Can you please be part of this? Jesus' response is not come back when you have your life figured out and you've eliminated doubt in your heart and you're totally 100% surrendered to me in every way you can imagine. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say get your life figured out, get rid of this scenario, figure out how to deal with that habit, make sure all your behaviors are just right, and then come back to me. Grace doesn't work that way. Religion says, I am holy. Christianity says, I am needy. Religion says, I have the answer. Jesus is the answer, is what you would say in Christianity. Religion says, accept me because of what I've done. Christianity says, accept me not because of what I have done or what I am, but because of who you are. Jesus follows the plea of help my unbelief with healing. Faith is evidence not in having all of the answers, but in trusting God with the most precious parts of our lives. Not getting our lives so figured out that we can present them to God and go, please bless it, but then going, God, I trust you with this, and I don't know what to do anymore. There's no linear fix. There's no 12-step to holiness process. The man says, here's my son. He's a deaf mute. He's demon-possessed. Jesus enters into this. Jesus has his way. The demon is out. And then what? Everybody around says, he's dead. 
The man, imagine this man, this father who feels he brings his child to his last hope. He brings him to Jesus and go, can you help him? And Jesus does what Jesus does and helps him. And then he's like a corpse and the people say he's dead. How does this man feel now? I believed, help my unbelief, now my son is dead. Do you ever feel like you started to follow Christ and things got harder? Do you ever feel like you made a commitment to faith and then everything just got more jumbled? I think of my family having come out of a dead religion uh, that they were in. My family finds true faith and the result of, of my family story is my youngest sister gets gravely ill. And so as my parents are finding faith and learning that it isn't religion, but it's relationship that saves you, as they're, as they're getting right with God and they're realizing that all of these years of effort and trying to look good on the outside didn't cut it, that it's actually about admitting that we need something greater and coming to Christ and surrendering our lives. My family goes through this. My parents go through it. My sisters go through it. It's this whole kind of family salvation thing that happens. And then my sister gets gravely ill and my family endures a 14-year slow-motion tragedy that ends with her death. Praying the whole time, God, we trust you. We know you can heal. We believe. Father, we believe. And the story ended with a funeral. Religion says we did our part, you do yours. Christianity says we have to believe that there's a reason for what you're doing. It's a greater faith. Help us in our doubt. Help us in our unbelief. And so as they look at this boy who's been writhing on the floor, is now a, a corpse to all who look on. As the people say, he is dead, the father must be crushed. I brought my son to Jesus and he only made it worse. And yet remember the context that we talked about, that Peter, James, and John were just up with Jesus on the mountaintop. They just saw him in the fullness of his glory, the transfiguration aglow with the presence of God. Imagine that they're watching this unfold. And as the crowd gathers closer and the crowd looks on and the whispers start and the he is dead is murmuring through the crowd, imagine Peter, James, and John going, wait, wait for it. It's that, that pregnant possibility that makes Christianity and a relationship with God so incredible. As the others are murmuring, Peter, James, and John are beside themselves going, no, no, you guys don't know what we just saw. You don't know who you're dealing with. This is no ordinary rabbi. Just wait for it. Wait for it, guys. And as they sit back, as their excitement builds, the story begins to unfold. And the question we ask, how much faith do I need for God to save me? For mercy and grace to apply to me? How much faith do I need? How much do I have to believe? And the answer we get out of this text is that I believe help my unbelief is enough faith for the mercy of God to work on our behalf verse 27 Jesus took the boy by the hand and lifted him up and he arose he then entered the house and his disciples asked him privately why could we not cast it out and he said to them this cannot be driven out by anything but prayer then verse 27 Jesus took him by the hand and he arose and you see in my mind I see Peter James and John at that moment high-fiving each other being like I told you guys he is fundamentally, materially different than anything you've ever experienced. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a religious person. He's not just a healer. He's something fundamentally different. 
He's no ordinary rabbi. And so walking with him every day as they did, even the disciples looked on and couldn't imagine what Jesus was capable of. And yet seeing the transfiguration, seeing Jesus in his most pure form as fully God and fully man, Peter, James, and John are watching going, this is no ordinary healer. He's the one. He's the Messiah. And I wonder if the disciples walk away from that scene, if the others who didn't see him on the mountaintop, because remember, if you go back and read it, Peter, James, and John were told not to tell anyone of what they saw. So these others don't have this knowledge. They don't know what he's capable of, and so they're going, man. And I wonder if their prayer that night was not, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so we keep asking the question, how much faith do I need for God to save me? How much faith do I need? How much belief do I have to have for Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection to cover me? Like, where's the line of eternal life? We did a series this year on John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whosoever should believe would not perish but have eternal life. That whosoever should believe. So I don't know where you are this morning. What I do know is that Jesus finds us in our helplessness and instills in us hope. That Jesus finds us in the ditch and pulls us out. That Jesus finds us writhing and brings us peace. So maybe you've been a believer your whole life. And you've compartmentalized some things and pushed them down out of the way so that no one would know that you have pockets of doubt, that you have moments of of indecision, that you have things that you're not quite sure how to reconcile. The big issues of faith when I'm terrified somebody asked me that question because if they ask, I don't know. Maybe your prayer today is, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. Stretch me and grow me and teach me and enlighten me and show me. Maybe you're in here and you would say, you know, I'm a skeptic. I'm glad you like Jesus, but I'm not sure about it. What we know to be true from the scripture is that the line to salvation is not when you get your life together. It's not when you figure your problems out. It's not when you do enough religious things or jump through enough boxes or crawl through enough hidden doors on the path to life. The path to eternal life is simple. It is belief. And so maybe your prayer this morning, if that is something you are interested in, if you want to start the journey with Jesus, you don't have to have it figured out. The prayer is the same. When we bow our heads and we close our eyes, if your heart's cry is, Jesus, I do believe. Help my unbelief to know that you've crossed the line. That his grace is covering you, that his mercy is fresh for you, and that all of the effort, all of the striving and the seeking can be turned into something totally different. Can be turned into salvation that allows for a journey of discovery on the other side of death. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we yearn to be humble before you, to admit that we don't have it all together, to admit that there are areas of life that are confusing, that are troubling, that the way that life goes and the way that it unfolds doesn't always leave us feeling exactly faithful and yet father we know that you are faithful and you know exactly what we're going through that you sent your son that he has experienced what we've experienced 
that he's familiar with our sufferings, that he's familiar with our trials. So in this room, our heart today is to say, Jesus, we believe. Help our unbelief. We believe that you are who you say you are, that you came and lived a perfect life, that you died for our sins, that you rose to extend life to us, and that you include us in it. We believe that. Help us in our unbelief. Help us to have humility, to have sobriety, that we might walk around this world on the other side of salvation, but with the humility to access those around us and to walk them through the journey of life. To see ourselves not as the new righteous, but to rest in your righteousness. To see ourselves not as the holy ones, but the helpless ones that you saw fit to save. Father, we believe. In Jesus' name, amen.